Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Performing Arts podcast, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tony Brown, and we are joined today with a very special episode with the one and only Andy Boyd. You know him as the man who's been carrying the New Books and Performing podcast for quite some time now and has been interviewing... uh, a trove of artists in the performing arts, but now today the tables have turned. I, your host, Tony Brown, am sitting here with playwright and uh, playwright author Andy Boyd, author of the play The Trade Federation, or Let's Explore Globalization Through the Star Wars Prequels. It is a new play that is published by No Passport Press. And you can find it online at their website, www.nopassport.org. And it's eight bucks. That is a great price for a play. Andy, <laughs> welcome to the show. Tony, thanks for that uh, wonderful introduction. It is a bit odd to be on the other side of the table, the virtual table. And I think it's a good surprise and present for the new year for all of your loyal <laughs> listeners and audience that you've built up. This, oh, yes. My, this legion, whole year. my legion of rabid fans. Absolutely. So let's get started, Andy. What 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 interested you about this subject? What got you into Star Wars? What interested you about the prequels? What what's going on here? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I obviously I've loved Star Wars since I was a kid. I mean, I feel like we all kind of grew up on Star Wars. I was born in 1991, so I was uh I was 7. Yeah, I would I would have been seven because I was born late 1991 when episode one came out. And uh, I just remember I'd already seen the original trilogy by the time episode one came out. So uh, I, I saw the first poster that had Anakin with the, his shadow forming the shape of Darth Vader. And I was just like, this movie is going to be the greatest film of all time. Uh, and then it was not the greatest film of all time. It was a pretty big disappointment, even for me. Uh, I was sort of an aspiring actor at the time. I was doing like local theater, and I really felt like I would have done a better job than the kid that they hired to play Anakin Skywalker. I was very jealous of that this kid. Is, wait, this is seven-year-old Andy thinking this? Oh, yeah. I was like, I could have done that. They should have cast me. You know, yeah, this like oh my gosh. second the grader living. So terrible. <laughs> yeah, no, the acting is really bad. And there's a super cut where it's just Anakin's lines. And it, it really drives home the fact that like, I mean, yeah, sure. It's hard being a child actor, but like he doesn't do a good job of it. Um, so, you know, that was kind of like my, my introduction to that. And then I watched, uh, obviously I've watched every Star Wars movie that's come out since then. A uh, big Star Wars fan. But I always sort of felt like, yeah, the prequels are pretty terrible, aren't they? They're, you know, they're. They're kind of boring. They're kind of corny. The Gungans are annoying. Um, But then when I was in my first year of grad school, I studied playwriting at Columbia. Um, I saw an article in the AV Club uh, about The Phantom Menace. 
and it, it sort of was making fun of how much of the Phantom Menace is devoted to discussions of trade negotiations. And it was sort of like, haha, what a terrible idea for a movie that they made a movie about trade negotiations in space. And I read that and I sort of thought, I don't know, that sounds kind of interesting. Like, did I did I miss something that was interesting about about the Phantom Menace? Um, and I'd also been reading a lot about uh, the anti-globalization movement of the 90s. Uh, I read uh, Naomi Klein's first book, No Logo, uh, which is a fantastic book, uh, looking both at kind of the problems of globalization and the movements against globalization, or some people say the movements for a just globalization. And so I started to think, well, actually, this like strange, shadowy organization of the Trade Federation that forms such a big part of The Phantom Menace uh, it's sort of a perfect uh, stand-in for organizations like the IMF or or the World Bank, you know, these kind of giant, uh, shadowy, multinational organizations that sort of order the late capitalist global economy that, you know, maybe have some tenuous uh, connection to some kind of uh, formal democratic legitimacy. But really, we don't understand them. We don't know what they do. But when you start to look at what they do, you realize that like a huge part of what we call globalization has been kind of structured by these organizations. You know, there's a book that I uh, cite in the bibliography uh, by Angari Woods called The Globalizers that is right, that is about these, uh, these organizations, the IMF and the World Bank and, and, and similar organizations. Um, and so I started to think, well, okay, so, you know, what if, what if that coincidence uh, isn't a coincidence at all. But what if the Trade Federation was intended all along as a sort of metaphor for these globalizing multinational bodies? Um, and the, the timeline actually kind of works. You know, I, I, I'm a character in the play, and we'll talk, a, I assume we'll talk a bit more about the actual plot of the play uh, in a bit. But uh, in the play, I say sort of, uh, you know, the Trade Federation, or the uh, not the Trade Federation, but the Phantom Menace came out in 1999, which is the same year No Logo is published. It's, it's the year of the riots in Seattle. It's the year of the Argentine economic crisis, uh, the inauguration of Hugo Chavez. I mean, it's just like the the context for the Phantom Menace is the anti-globalization movement. Um, so I started to think, you know, what if that were explicit text rather than sort of possible subtext? So then I started to kind of think of how I write that as a play. And I came up with this idea of kind of structuring the play around this pitch meeting where I, as a character named Andy Boyd, am pitching my script to George Lucas that's sort of a prequel to the prequels, making it more explicit uh, than it even was originally that the Trade Federation is the International Monetary Fund. And so when you came to these conclusions, did you revisit the first movie again? Did that change your opinion on it? Yeah, I did. I did. Um, I, 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 I rewatched the first movie. One of the big things that I realized watching the first movie is that it's actually pretty fun. Uh, it's very dumb, but I feel like Star Wars movies are kind of like the Beatles, in that, like, there's going to be dumb stuff. And what makes a good Star Wars movie or a good Beatles album is just whether the dumb stuff is fun or just dumb. You know, like, for me, like, Sgt. Pepper's is the greatest Beatles album because the dumb song, the dumb songs are like When I'm 64 and Lovely Rita, and those are fun songs. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, the dumb songs on the White Album are unlistenable. Um, and I sort of feel that way about Star Wars. Like, there's dumb stuff in all of the movies, but, like, 
I don't know, Greedo's fun. This sort of like dirtbag mechanic character who's like also a giant fly. Like that's fun. The pod racing scene is a lot of fun. The fight with Darth Maul is fun. Um, yeah, so there's just a, like a lot of stuff in it that I I had sort of forgotten was as entertaining as it was. And then when I went forward from then and watched episodes two and three, they just get even less fun. They just become total slogs. And Hayden Christensen as Anakin is just this sort of like brooding, annoying incel. And so I, I had I had gone into these movies thinking like two and three are pretty good, but one is like a real turkey. But after rewatching them, and I kind of stand by this, I think Phantom Menace is the best of them because it's the only one that's like any fun to watch. You were saying that. And a quick side note about the terrible acting of Anakin Skywalker. I think one of the great things that they got right with these three new movies that have come out is they're like, okay, so there's a fine line between fun and interesting and cool and dumb and all that's going to happen. But what if we take Juilliard actors and Yale School of Drama actors and RADA actors, maybe that'll help it a little bit. Right, right. Yeah, the actors in the new movies are really talented actors, and that's definitely one of the things that kind of elevates them above the prequels. Exactly. So, you've revisited Star Wars Episode One. you've become a fan of it, you started writing this play, now you've written yourself into the play. Have you ever done that before? I have not, no. Um, And and I've really never drawn on... Well, that's not true. It's been a very long time since I've even drawn on my life at all in writing my plays. My plays are usually sort of very uh, grounded in intense historical research. So, for example, I did a play about a neo-Confederate colony in Brazil, and I I read everything available about that colony. It's called Americana. It still exists. Uh, They have a Confederate-themed Fourth of July party every year. Um, I wrote another play about women in Puritan New England. So I read everything I could find about that subject. Um, I wrote another play about the year that Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo spent in Detroit when he, when Rivera was working on the Detroit industry murals. And I read everything I could find about that. So this was really the only play that I've written in the past, I don't know, uh, five years or so uh, that, that drew on me at all. Um, in a sort of explicit way. Um, I don't think my life is particularly interesting. I'm not I, I'm not writing primarily out of a desire for self-expression. I'm writing out of a desire to explore my world, right? The world around me, not my own inner self. Um, and, and even the character in the play is like, it's a version of me uh, that is not me. Like this, I live in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. This character lives in Los Feliz, Los Angeles. I'm not trying to be a screenwriter. This character is trying to be a screenwriter, trying to sort of like see, you know, can I parlay my talents as an obscure experimental playwright into uh, those Hollywood big bucks? That's like not something I'm pursuing with uh, all that much energy. So even though it is named Andy Boyd and it is a, it, he he is a obscure experimental playwright, it's not me. And I have never played that character, even though I do act, I've never played the character of Andy Boyd in any of the productions of this play. Um, so yeah, it's sort of a weird thing. And, and in trying to think of like, how would I write myself into a play? I was very inspired by David Henry Huang's play, yellow face, where there's a, there's a character named DHH who's a version of David. Uh, but David, if I, I don't know if you know him at all, but he's like a very, 
nice, genial, polite, gracious person. And the character he wrote for himself was like sort of a dirtbag and sort of like sort of like a screw up. Um, and I really liked that idea of like, if you're going to write yourself into your play, it's like really corny if you write a flattering version of yourself. And it's a lot more fun if you write a version of yourself that's like all of your worst qualities amplified. So like this version of Andy Boyd is like very um, sure of himself, uh, like not very good at writing. Um, uh, Like there's the sort of ongoing joke of the long first scene that is the pitch meeting is I keep on presenting these scenes, which are then acted out by, you know, actors uh, in the kind of in the world of Star Wars. And then we cut back to the pitch meeting and George Lucas is like, wow, that scene was somehow even worse than the last one. You know, like that's the joke is that like I wrote a screenplay and it's not any good. Um, and, and yet I'm convinced that it's great. And I cannot uh, read George Lucas's hostility uh, slash indifference because I'm so uh, convinced that I'm this sort of unique genius. There's a line where my character says, I thought you saw something in, in me, maybe something of who you used to be, but you just saw another 20 something genius. You could plug into the money machine. You know, so that maybe gives you a flavor of like how I present myself. Totally. And you know, when I'm reading it too, I'm, I'm thinking, man, I know Andy Boyd. He's my neighbor. We're actually across the street from each other right now in quarantine. But you know, one of the things that I was thinking about when I was reading it was, Man, the only kind of similarities to the Andy Boyd that I know is the reference to experimental playwriting and then the commitment to yeah. leftism. Yes. In, yeah. in a way, your yourself is able to come through in that manner. And then you kind of, it's almost liberating. You can craft this almost polarizing in all directions human version of yourself that fits what you're trying to articulate in the play. Thanks, Tony. And there's, uh, there's another aspect of the play that's drawn for me, which is that uh, my Nana, uh, Beth Mackey is a character uh, just because she asked me to put her in one of my plays. Uh, we were talking on the phone one day and she was like, you know, have you ever thought about putting me in one of your plays? And I hadn't, uh, but I was like, you know what? You're like, <laughs> Uh, one of my favorite people in the world. You know, my Nana played a huge role in in raising me and forming who I am today. So the least I can do is honor this request to put her in the play. So she's in the play. And there are some jokes in the play. My, my brother always is like astounded by the fact that anybody relates to this play because there are jokes that really you will only, you would only get if you were like a member of my immediate family. Um, like my, my, my Nana's husband uh, made a pipe organ for his church uh, he's like a, he was an engineer by trade and in his retirement, he assembled this gigantic pipe organ and he had such a great time doing that, that he, uh, assembled another pipe organ for the same church. Um, which I, I think they must've been grateful for at a certain level, but also sort of like, you know, most churches just have the one. Uh, so in the, in the play, there's a joke that he's now constructed them seven pipe organs. But like that's not a that's not a joke that you would get unless you understand the premise of my grandfather uh, built uh, uh, two pipe organs for his church, and it's not a big church. It's like a small like there's probably maybe a hundred people who attend this right. church, 
I mean, it's also organs. a bizarre image to just go on that joke real quick. Is <laughs> like I'm envisioning a church with the uh, walls are completely made up of pipe organs, and then I'm just like thinking, yes. oh, okay, now we're bringing religion into it, and the church is spending money on itself. And it's music than helping poor people. So I just thought that's a funny commentary. Yeah. And there is sort of, yeah, there's a, there's an image in the play where my Nana describes the pipes of the pipe organ uh, forming great tangles of shining metal and uh, obscuring the rafters and all that. And so you do get the sense that this church is now this sort of uh, enclosed metal box with these weird twisting shapes where you can't actually figure out what any of them do, which is sort of what the set design of Star Wars looks like to me. You know, there's all these sort of like weird giant holes to nowhere and just like uh, panels with blinking lights. And you sort of think, I don't know if anybody ever thought, you know, what's the what's the purpose of this? But it looks pretty cool. You know, so there was a, a bit of that kind of futuristic sense as well. But yeah, the core of the joke is like uh, willfully esoteric. Right. So you... <laughs> have written yourself into this play. You wrote your grandma into this play and you kind of had these family jokes going on. And then I read before I started in this uh, wonderful published version of the play at no passport press, no passport.org. You can buy it there. Um, You talk about making this play (laughs) in the style of big cheap theater um, when you were working on it at Columbia can you talk about that? Because I think that's a good transition with adding yourself, your grandma. What is Big Cheap Theater? Yeah, um, Big Cheap Theater is a term that I think I first learned from Eric N., who's a fantastic playwright, who was also my neighbor when I lived in Providence. Um, and he's the sort of like uh, sort of mystic of the theater. He's got this wonderful, shiny, bald head. And he writes these, he wrote a whole series of plays based on the lives of Catholic saints. Um, and he wrote another series of plays based on genocides all around the world. And they're these sort of very strange, uh, giant uh, spectacles, but often with very sparse language. And and I think for him, the term big, cheap theater means sort of embracing the fact that theater will never have the budget of you know Star Wars or any other giant media spectacle, but that doing things cheaply but grandly can be really thrilling in a live event. Um, you know, everything that's happening in theater is is happening right there in front of you. So if you see giant cardboard puppets, um, it can look awesome, you know, even though it, it, it maybe looks nothing like, you know, what the, what the, the puppet is trying to represent, but just the sort of sheer physicality of having these giant puppets or set pieces uh, or costume pieces, um, can create a really unique sense of theatricality. And that's something that I love in groups like the San Francisco Mime Troupe, uh, which was a very, very early inspiration to my playwriting. I found an anthology of theirs in a bookstore in Prescott, Arizona, when I was 16, before I even started writing plays. And I just loved them. And there were these sort of zany, carnivalesque plays, but about topics like American imperialism and the ecological crisis and gentrification. And it wasn't actually until just a couple of years ago that I actually got to saw, got to see a performance by the San Francisco Mime Troupe. But uh, another group, uh, Bread and Puppet Theater, is maybe more known, known to people on the East Coast. Um, and they're another group that, you know, constructs these giant 
sometimes you know 12 feet tall or 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 taller um puppets and costume pieces usually out of things like cardboard foam core um and they're not trying it's not illusionistic they're not trying to look like they're not made out of cardboard but they're just trying to sort of communicate that sort of ritualistic grandeur that you get from having these giant pieces uh walking around on stage and that sense of play that sense of sort of i said the word carnivalesque and and that sense of like you know, almost almost a circus atmosphere is to me really exciting about this kind of tradition of leftist theater. And that's something that I have tried to capture a bit of in this play, even though it's not it's not quite that same style. Um, but it does have that sense of of sort of being uh, larger than life, even though it's, you know, the original budget for this play was maybe a thousand dollars, probably less. I love that. And so just to clarify real quick, Big Cheap Theater, is this something that your friend uh, and mentor in Providence, did he come up with this term? I don't know if he came up with it. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. And I, I also don't know if if, if Eric would uh, call me his okay. friend. But A guy I know. Uh, I learned it from him. I'm not sure if he coined the term. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the uh, the etymology of that term is. But it's, a, it's an idea that I found inspiring in, in certain of my plays. So... You have yourself, Andy Boyd, your fictional version of yourself in this play, and you're pitching the Star Wars pre-prequel to George Lucas. And we've kind of talked yeah. already about the Trade Federation uh, being an allusion to the International Monetary Fund and World Bank. What else is going on in this play that you're pi- this movie you're pitching to George Lucas? And, sure. And what are the dynamics? Yeah, let's. Yeah. So. So. The Trade Federation is the IMF. Uh, that's that's we've said that already. Um, and then Princess, uh, I guess Queen Amidala uh, is sort of a representative of like um, a country that is in dire financial straits and has to deal with uh, with the IMF slash the Trade Federation. Uh, so she's sort of like young, charismatic, progressive leader um i somewhat modeled her on aoc a little bit there's a there's an aoc specific joke where some where she talks about uh, her critics worst fears being justified when video surfaced of her doing a cool dance um but but really i mean that's not aoc's not yet the head of state so it's not a perfect metaphor so i don't know i think of her sort of as as kind of like AMLO in Mexico, where he's this president who is elected on a reform agenda, um, a sort of left-wing populist agenda. And yet, um, I don't think AMLO has really grappled with what it means to be the head of state of this uh, country that is, to some extent, still a colonial project. Uh, I mean, the indigenous resistance movements in the south of Mexico have opposed a lot of his uh, development policies. And this kind of style of third world developmentalism that AMLO kind of comes out of has often been sort of not great on indigenous rights, certainly better than the right wing parties, but has not always sort of brought them in as a full partner into the government. And, um, you know, as a side note, that's one of the things that's so inspiring about about Bolivia is that they really have um, made an effort to bring in uh, those kind of popular sectors into their governing coalition. Uh, so we love to see that. 
Um, so that's sort of who she is. And then the Gungans, the, the Gungans are the one that I'm like most sure this is like an intentional metaphor in The Phantom Menace. They're the sort of representative of these indigenous resistance movements like the Zapatistas, like the Sandinistas, um, like the VC, uh, these kind of these these group, these decolonializing uh, indigenous resistance movements that are kind of up against this giant state power. Um, also, you know, another inspiration were the, was the, the standing rock Sioux and, uh, and that whole occupation. Um, a big part of the plot of the screenplay within the play is that the Gungans are trying to fight off this pipeline. That's going to transport plasma, uh, from the plasma mines to the capital. And it's going to pass right by their sort of ancestral wetlands. So that's obviously a pretty direct reference to Standing Rock. And were you? Uh, and then the Jedi. Yeah, the, the Jedi. Jedi. I always forget the Jedi. Uh, and the, <laughs> the Jedi. <laughs> I always feel like the Jedi. I mean, you know, in in the original movies, there's one Jedi. You know, if you're if uh, it's for most of those for most of the original trilogy. Uh, the only surviving Jedi is Yoda. I mean, Luke's not really yet a Jedi until maybe the the third of the original trilogy. Obi-Wan dies pretty early in the first one. So, you know, the Jedi are really a small group. And even even in the prequels, you know, there's maybe a thousand of them. So, yeah, you can maybe have Jedi come in to do one certain small tactical uh, maneuver, but they're not really a large enough organization to tackle the broader systemic problems that face the galaxy. And we see this in the prequels that they are completely uh, unable to stop the, the sort of uh, encroaching fascism of Count Dooku, you know, Uh, they, they completely fall flat on their face uh, and, and get massacred. Uh, A lot of them get massacred by these like dinky little droids, which always seemed strange to me. So I sort of thought it would be funny to portray the Jedi as this, largely ineffectual, almost symbolic uh, sort of peacekeeping force, similar to the UN peacekeepers who, you know, maybe they come in to kind of clean up the mess or maybe they try to stop some of the worst uh, brutality that's going on, but they're really not interested in rectifying the uh, underlying kind of structural dynamics that create violence and inequality. So that's, that's the Jedi as UN peacekeeping force who also have stock portfolios invested in the systems of oppression. <laughs> yes, yes, who, who who are who are massively compromised uh and have bought into the system. Yeah, exactly. I actually actually loved this analogy of the Jedi in your play Andy and because and I actually became more of a fan of Star Wars by reading your play than watching the movies <laughs> because I, the Jedi I'm going to be honest, I'm not the biggest Star Wars fan. It never did it for me. I don't know if it was because I don't know what what caused my like lack of fandom. I don't know if it was because I lived in Europe when I was like two, three, four years old. And so I don't know if that's like when kids are first introduced to Star Wars and you can kind right. of latch onto it. I only saw it, the re-release right before the prequels. That's kind of all I had. Mm-hmm. So, I, so when I was watching Star Wars, you were watching Breathless and Abandoned yes, Park. Yes, exactly. Totally. I was actually... <laughs> Seventh Seal. Right. I was actually yeah. watching Ron Howard's Apollo 13. That was the space movie I was watching. So, okay. Weird, okay. weird kid. But anyways, 
I didn't, I didn't know. I, I have no thoughts on the Jedi. And so this mm-hmm. take on the Jedi as being this ineffective UN is just absolutely fascinating to me. Oh, thanks. So I, I just wanted to, to applaud you on that. So thanks, Tony. Uh, another question. Um, well, actually, also, side note, you're, you're so right um, in your thoughts on George Lucas because yeah. we were talking about we, we should talk about this. Walk, and I said, hey, Andy, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> I just watched this pro-Sandinista film that George Lucas produced and ghost edited in the 80s that was promptly buried by the government. And, like, in a really, like, Reagan... Maybe because Reagan was in Hollywood and was the pr- president of the Screen Actors Guild, that he was able to like manipulate the system and like coach people on Hollywood. But it was buried as in like no one said anything about it. People saw it in his administration, but they didn't make a comment because if they made a comment about this film uh, negatively, that would spark more interest in the film. So it was almost, uh-huh. it was totally collectively promptly buried. Um, so the sympathies are there with him. Uh, and this was like released by Lucasfilm. Like this was his production company released it. And it's called Latino. And it is like, yeah, it's a movie about an American guy who like goes to Nicaragua and becomes disillusioned in a sort of Graham Greene fashion with American imperialism and starts to sympathize with the Sandinistas. I mean, I do, I having worked on the, I've, I've been working on this play for a long time. I mean, I started it in 2015 and I've kind of convinced myself that like, I'm right. Like, I think that Star Wars actually is supposed to be leftist propaganda, um, which like might seem surprising to some, but I think I think it's there. And I think Latino is really the smoking gun that makes you think, OK, so it's not a coincidence that um, in the 70s and 80s, George Lucas is making films where the bad guys are called the Empire. Um, and, and and there's no attempt really in the original trilogy to make the bad guys seem like the Soviet Union at all. Like there's not I mean, you could very easily have like, I don't know, had them saying some. I don't know, cynical thing about how they represent the will of the people or anything, but it's not that it's just uh, Darth Vader's pitch to Anakin in uh, Empire Strikes Back is uh, help us end these destructive wars and bring order to the galaxy. And like, that's Reagan, you know? So I, I think I'm right. And I think, uh, I think Star Wars actually, I mean, that's the, th- the, the joke is yes. I wrote a play that imagines a world where Star Wars is Marxist propaganda but I think the secret is that we're living in that world, Tony. I 100% agree. I think, and I, and I think Latino is the biggest smoking gun ever. But then also yeah. George Lucas is now worth $4 billion. And yeah, hard to say no to that sweet Disney money. I mean, I, I, I don't blame I, him. I agree. Capitalism will get us one way or another. That's That's the way it'll be until it crumbles, you know? There's a line in the play where George Lucas says, explains that he... Uh, sold the rights to Star Wars to Disney because it made him a butt ton of money, um, and and he says that it's that he was paid a little bit more than the GDP of Sierra Leone, which is which true. is outrageous. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. What a world we live in. So, okay, now let's talk about you as a leftist and Marxist. Would you consider yourself a Marxist? Is that what you self-identify as? 
Yeah, I'm a sort of heterodox Marxist, but I'd say, yeah, broadly, I'm in that tradition for sure. So how did you first stumble into this kind of politics? And then how did you transition that into your art? Yeah, tale as old as time, Tony. It was Howard Zinn, uh, People's History of the United States, which I read in high school. Um, and it completely changed my life. Uh, it, it, it made me realize I was listening to a podcast yesterday, uh, Home of the Brave, great podcast. And they were interviewing this Vietnam vet. And he told this story of when he was in Vietnam, he was on patrol and uh, his sergeant, just for no reason, threw a sandbag at an old man on a bicycle just to just to watch him fall off. Right. Just as a cruel joke. And this guy said, I realized in that moment that we were the bad guys and we were going to lose this war. And I feel like reading Howard Zinn, I mean, obviously it was not as visceral as that experience, but it was a similar moment where I just was sort of like, oh, my whole life I've been taught that the U.S. is this beacon of democracy and freedom. Uh, and it's a lie. It's not true. It's never been true. We were uh, founded on indigenous dispossession and slavery um, to the extent that we were ever, quote unquote, great uh, we achieved that through colonialism and through exploitation of our domestic labor force um, and through ruthless uh, deployment of our military um, in almost entirely unjustified wars. Um, and and I'd already, you know, I, I had already sort of been drifting to the left under the influence of my, you know, liberal parents because this was the Bush administration. And I... I was very vocal to like the other kids in my middle school that I thought Bush was an idiot and the Iraq war was a horrible mistake. Um, so, somehow I, right? no, this time I was still in Washington, Washington state. I moved oh, to Arizona okay. in high school. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, somehow I knew something about the Iraq war that Joe Biden didn't. I don't know how that happened, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I was, I, and I, but I sort of thought Bush is the problem. Right. Um, and I was very excited when Obama won and then reading, Zen really made me realize like, no, the problem isn't who's in the White House. The problem is the whole system. Um, and there's a there's a short chapter in the book that's sort of not proper history, where he's kind of laying out this vision for what he calls neighborly socialism, this kind of uh, economy based on cooperatives, um, where workers democratically control the means of production. And that became my vision of utopia um, and still is. Uh, I, I still, you know, I think I still basically, basically everything I think about the world is, is in that book and in that chapter specifically. And so I just started Googling the word socialist, uh, because I was like, apparently this is what I believe, but I, I only know this one book. And I found, um, uh, the ISO, uh, I didn't ever join the ISO, but I found their website, which just every day would post five or so new articles about, the news of the world from a socialist perspective. Um, and I read, I read people in the ISO who I'm friends with now today as like a teenager in, in Washington state. And then in Arizona um, who profoundly influenced my way of thinking. And, and I, and when I met them years later, I was like too starstruck to say anything, even though they're just like, you know, people who work in unions and stuff, they're just kind of everyday socialist organizers. Um, but that really formed a lot of my worldview um, reading those articles. And then, uh, when I was a senior in high school, uh, in Arizona, SB 1070 got passed, which was this very draconian anti-immigrant bill, 
um, that it's sometimes known as like the Show Me Your Papers Act, that basically deputized local cops to pull over anybody who seemed like they might be undocumented. <laughs> it's like, there's no way to look undocumented other than to look Mexican in a white supremacist state like Arizona. Um, and so I went to a lot of protests. Uh, I, I skipped school to go uh, march down to the Capitol a couple of times. And while I was on those long marches, I met uh, you know, anarchists and Trotskyists and, uh, you know, people from across the whole spectrum of sort of far left political opinion. And they kind of uh, introduced me into that world uh, of a political organization further. Um, and then I did a bit of political stuff in college, sort of uh, I did like worker solidarity stuff with the um, dining hall workers and clerical workers and stuff like that. But I, I didn't, I sort of was not... I was not the like campus radical I maybe wish I was. Um, but but then, you know, in recent years, I've become uh, in, involved with DSA in Brooklyn. Uh, and that that's kind of become my main kind of political political vehicle, uh, political organization that I'm involved with. And then I so that's kind of the political story. And then I started writing plays really about that same time in kind of late high school. Um, and I, I wanted to write political plays like uh like San Francisco Mime Troop did but I kind of didn't know how and it, and and all the plays that I'd read in high school were sort of like Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams these kind of plays that were mostly about families were mostly about kind of interpersonal dynamics weren't really about the kind of world systems that marxism is about um so I didn't really know how to connect those things until really pretty recently like, yeah, I would say the Trade Federation is like kind of at the beginning of me trying to figure out how you can tell stories that are about the kind of broad structures of the world, but in a way that still feels like theatrical and grounded in character and and grounded in specific moments and um, and doesn't feel preachy and and feels like it, it, it has uh, room for the audience to kind of um, intellectually make their way into the play and kind of make their own intervention. Um so yeah, and then and and some writers who have helped me kind of look at how to do that are people like Wallace Shawn, Carol Churchill, uh, Naomi Wallace, people who um, who found kind of theatrical language to talk about these kind of broader political issues. And how do you feel as a leftist playwright in theater in twenty twenty one? Is there any sort of apprehension of your identity and its place or how the public views? Because to me, honestly, I think there's right now almost a resurgence of more leftist playwriting and even filmmaking, right? I, I mean, Boots Riley, yeah. The Breath of Fresh Air coming out yeah. with a major, it's an indie film, but it's a little bit more big budget in it. It was sold for a lot and distributed pretty widely. And to him yeah. to come out and be like, I am a Marxist after McCarthy yeah. and the House of Un-American Activities. How, where, where do you fall into that? Well, and even even Ryan Johnson's Star Wars movie is like a pretty, pretty leftist take on Star Wars. I mean, I sort of when I saw that movie, I was like, I briefly freaked out and thought like the Trade Federation is no longer relevant because they just went and made a Star Wars movie that is an explicit Marxist allegory. Um, so, yeah, I do feel like. I feel like 
you know, um, when Susan Sarandon said Trump will awaken a revolution, like she was right. Um, and I, I do feel like there has been more of a kind of um, critical awakening in America in the wake of Trump's victory. And people have sort of had to ask themselves, like, how could this country that I've always thought is a good country elect such an obviously bad president? Um, you know, this kind of grotesquely racist and sexist and, um, and, 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 you know, criminally misogynist, uh, president, how could he become the, the sort of figurehead for half of the country? Um, so I think that's definitely like made the theater a bit more welcoming to dissonant voices than it maybe was before. And also I think, you know, this is not something that obviously benefits me in any direct way, but I think in the wake of Black Lives Matter, a lot of theaters have realized that they're simply producing far too many plays by white dudes and not enough plays by people of color and not enough plays by people of color that are in aesthetic forms that are not derived from sort of white male masters. I mean, you know, we all love Lorraine Hansberry, but nobody ever produces any of her plays other than... um Raisin in the Sun, because Raisin in the Sun is the play that feels like an Arthur Miller play. But she has other, you know, much more experimental plays that just don't get done because they don't fit our kind of preconceived notion of like what theater is like. So I think that's all to the good. I think this is a really hopeful time for theater. There's a certain type of like theater guy that's always kind of talking about everything that sucks about the American theater. And I, I just, uh, uh, I'm, I'm bored of that. And I, there's stuff that I don't care for and I just ignore it. I mean, you know, most of the stuff on Broadway, I just, I just feel like I don't have to see that and I don't care. And that's fine. That can be their theater. It doesn't have to be my theater. Um, but I think that there are a lot of really great playwrights. I mean, every time I see a theater company announce a season, uh, you know, and it, <laughs> they very rarely have any of my plays in them. Um, but they often have great new plays. You know, I mean, I I have friends who are great young playwrights who are getting productions at, you know, off-off Broadway theaters. And I think that's fantastic. I think that, um, I think we're kind of in like a, 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 a mini golden age of playwriting. Um, I mean, if you just look at the, the plays that have won the Pulitzer Prize in the last 15 years, they're all great plays with one notable exception that we don't have to talk about. <laughs> all right we won't talk about it but yeah no i hear you especially with white playwrights and um this is such an interesting time in this kind of awakening of theater and what we produce and what we produce commercially i won't name the playwright's name but there was a playwright who tweeted out suggesting that jeff bezos should just buy the post office Yes. Yeah. No, that's going to save us from uh, budget cuts is uh, privatization for sure. This is a great take you see. Right. Yeah. And this playwright regularly has plays on Broadway and is probably yeah. one of the top draws on Broadway yeah. for plays. And there are so yeah. many playwrights of color, leftist playwrights, experimental playwrights. There's so much talent in yeah. New York City that that this whole reassessment that's going on this golden age that you're talking about, I think is extremely important. Yeah. And I mean, you know, and I know people have critiques of this play, but like slave play was on Broadway. Like that's amazing. 
it's amazing that Slave Play was on Broadway. Like, we should all be, you know, very thankful that, like, someone like Jeremy R. Harris has a career at this moment in in theater history. Absolutely. And one of the great things about that is not only is he writing a play like Slave Play, he's also going out into the public and putting himself out there to get the random person off the street to say, hey, this is for you. Like, this is for you. You've never seen a play before. My play is the first play you're going to want to see. Yeah. And and using his fame and success to, like, lift up other voices in the field. He has an initiative where, like, he he got a first look deal from one of the big movie studios. And part of the deal was that they would give him a certain amount of money that he could just use to fund other people's theater projects. And he has another project where he selected a like canon of like 20 great plays by African-American writers and is finding a library in every state in the union to host this mini canon. Um, that's, it's great. It's, you know, I mean, he's, he's like a true inspiration. Um, but I think, yeah, I think like that wouldn't have happened 15 years ago. You know, I mean, I, I do think like things are starting to open up a little bit to, to different kinds of voices, because I think people are starting to realize that like part of what theater is, is world building. It's imagining what kind of world we want to live in. And that's always going to be political. You know, I mean, I, there, how many times have, have you gone to see a play and you know what, you know everything about the play the minute you walk in the theater, because the set is, you know, a very nice New York apartment on the Upper West Side, you know, like you, you see that apartment and you know what that play is already, With you know, appliances that work better than yeah, your own. Yeah. Right. Yes. Um, you know, I, I'm just I'm tired of that. Uh, but, you know, thankfully, that's not all that we're seeing anymore. So we're going to wrap this interview up, but I want to end it on two questions. One, let's talk about Star Wars, Andy. What is what have you been liking <laughs> out of Star Wars and what do you see on the horizon for the universe? Yeah, I mean, I think the last Star Wars movie was really a disappointment. Um and it really felt like a purposeful uh, revision of everything that Ryan Johnson had done in Last Jedi, which, I, as I've said before, I really loved that movie. And then this one just felt like, nope, uh, all of that stuff. We're just going to we're just going to forget it ever happened, um, which I felt was like, you know, pretty cowardly. And the fact that the big reveal at the end is just, oh, it's Emperor Palpatine again, who you thought was dead, but he's not dead. It's like. You know, I mean, I grew up reading comic books like the you thought he was dead, but he's not dead. It just doesn't surprise me anymore. That's just like not a very interesting reveal. Um, so I, I I didn't like those. But I think Mandalorian's a lot of fun. I think Mandalorian's great, like space Western, you know, always fun, always a fun trope. Um, so I think Mandalorian's good. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I am excited also that like, again, not so much in the last movie, but it does seem like they're starting to think, well, what are what are the other stories within the Star Wars universe that we can tell? What are other corners that we haven't explored before? You know, the fact that in Last Jedi, one of the heroes is just this, like, you know, mechanic who's, you know, also is an Asian woman, I think is great. Uh, that, like, when you watch the original trilogy, it's sort of like, is there space racism? Because, like, all the X-Wing pilots are white dudes, you know? <laughs> like, and and I think that, obviously, this is, to some extent, just, like, a, a sign of the times. But the fact that they are, you know, hiring directors who are interested in kind of looking at what are aspects of this world that we haven't seen before. Um, you know, also, the, another thing about Last Jedi that I thought was great is, like, challenging this kind of mythology of the Jedi is this, like, special group of people that, 
isn't like anybody else and that is sort of the universe's unique savior. I mean, I think that I, as I've said before, I love superhero movies. And I love comic books, but like that idea of this like superhero savior, I think is really dangerous. Uh, and I think, I think, you know, p- one of the messages I got from last Jedi was like, if, if anyone's going to save the world, it has to be you. It has to be all of us, you know? Um, so I think that's really inspiring. We'll see. I mean, you know, Star Wars is in the hands of the Disney Corporation, which is obviously above on and beyond, beyond uh, everything else uh, out to make money. So, you know, they're, they're going to pander to the worst impulses of Star Wars internet nerddom to a certain extent. Um, but also I think that we're seeing more and more that diverse stories and stories that are not only like ethnically diverse, but sort of um, aesthetically groundbreaking find more of an audience than maybe they did before. Um, or maybe they've always found an audience and the studios just weren't paying attention, but I don't know. I'm cautiously optimistic for the future of star Wars. We'll see. And one final question. What are your views of the future of the left and democratic socialism in America? What, where oh, are gosh. we right now? This is <laughs> You're a ending on a real softball, question. right? Yeah, real softball. Um, what are my thoughts? I mean, we lost. We lost twice. You know, I feel like we we really invested a lot in Bernie and he did, he came up short. And he came up short for a lot of reasons, but like some of the reasons, I think the good news is that some of the reasons that Bernie came up short are not just the DNC. You know, I think Bernie came up short because as like an older white dude from Vermont, he didn't really, he wasn't comfortable speaking about issues of racism in the way that a lot of the younger people who are also prominent democratic socialist figures like AOC, like Rashida Tlaib are more comfortable talking about the ways that racism and capitalism are intimately connected. And we need to make that connection because it's, it's there. It's true. Uh, if we, if we don't, uh, you know, simultaneously attack racism and capitalism, we're not going to um, solve any of the problems that those, you know, horrible systems have created uh, because they are just so intimately connected with each other. So that's something that we can work on as a movement, which is good news. The bad news is like, I do think the DNC meddling was like a real thing. And, you know, we sent thousands of people to knock on doors in Iowa and then Obama made one phone call or, you know, five or six phone calls and got everybody else to drop out. Uh, and, and then, uh, this divided field that Bernie was counting on was suddenly narrowed down to Joe Biden, uh, and Joe Biden won the nomination. And I don't know what we could have done to prevent that, you know, like, uh, I don't know, stolen Obama's phone. Like, I don't, I don't know what we could have done. Like, there's just, there's a lot of power invested in the democratic party and there's a, and you know, in a sort of Gramscian perspective, like the democratic party still has a certain amount of hegemony, uh, among democratic voters. There are a certain number of people who really do feel like someone like Joe Biden is fighting for them. Someone like Kamala Harris is fighting for them. And, you know, that might seem sort of ridiculous from our viewpoint, but a lot of people believe that. And I think we still need to do a lot of work kind of both delegitimizing the Democratic Party mainstream, but also lifting up people like AOC who can present a different vision and who can say, you know, if you say you care about any racism, then like you should care about ending climate change because climate change is going to disproportionately impact uh, people of color. I mean, you, we already see increased tornado or increased hurricanes in uh, the Caribbean, which are destroying these islands. Just They're just getting absolutely pummeled year after year. And if you care about you know, the fate of people of color in the world, like you got to care about those people. You got to care about rising sea level if you care about people in Bangladesh. And um, 
And so I think, and, and I think also, you know, I'm going to gush about AOC a little bit here. I think she has a real like internationalism about the way that she thinks about politics that's really needed on the U.S. left. I think that's another thing that um, we could we could do better on is like, you got to care about people outside of these borders because the problems that are facing the world are global problems. The rise of fascism is a global problem. Climate catastrophe is a global problem. So if you have these little like, you know, nationalistic frames of looking at these problems, you're just not going to understand them. So, I mean, I think there's still work to be done in kind of saying, I think there are a lot of people who are, you know, good liberals like my parents who don't consider themselves socialists, but who I think could be persuaded to make that leap if they were, if they were made to understand that the people who are actually fighting for the values that they claim to espouse are not the people they keep voting for, but they're people like AOC and Ilhan Omar and, you know, Bernie um, they're, they're people who are actually going to deliver the kind of transformative change that we need in our country if we want to end climate change, if we want to end gentrification, if we want to secure housing as a human right, if we want to secure healthcare as a human right. You know, Joe Biden is not interested in securing he- healthcare as a human right. And yet a huge percentage of people who support Medicare for all voted for Joe Biden. You know, so there's there's a disconnect between what people think the Democratic Party wants to do and what the Democratic Party actually wants to do. So I feel like we there's 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 convertible people in that space. Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, you're Tony. Listening. This was really fun. Yeah. You're listening to the New Books and Performing Arts podcast on the New Books Network. I am Tony Brown, and I have just sat down with Andy Boyd. You're number one host on this podcast with the mostest and his play the trade federation or let's explore globalization through the star wars prequels which you can buy right now online at no passport press www.nopassport.org and it's only eight bucks open up your wallets give this man some of your money learn about leftism and its connection with Star Wars because there's a huge smoking gun and Andy caught it and it is a lovely, lovely play. It's also a comedy. There's jokes. I promise oh, there's yeah. jokes. It's super funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, thanks, let's Tony. Let's just this... end this podcast on a high note. I, I wasn't going to end it on this, but let's let's add some comedy. Is electing Joe Biden to the presidency <laughs> elder abuse? Go. Okay, come on. Come <laughs> on. <laughs> Um, um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's going to be very strong. I don't think he's going to last through his first term. I mean, you know, the the day that Joe Biden won, I was like, it'll be cool to have the first black woman president because she's going to be president within the year. You know, I, I don't think he's got much juice left in him. Wow. Like, like you think that there's something going on that we don't know about? Possibly? No, I think there's just all the things that are going on that we can see right in front of us. I mean, he's like a, you know... Uh, I I don't think that it's impossible for older people to be effective statesmen, but I do think that the cognitive decline that we've seen in, in Joe Biden since the time he was vice president is, is noticeable. Uh, And I, I would not be surprised if he stepped down before his full term is out. And uh, yeah, I I was looking at him when he won and he gave that speech out in Delaware and I just like saw the look in his eyes and it was just, Man, I wish I could have enjoyed this in my fifties or sixties. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, yeah, he's wanted to be president for so long. It seems to be his great uh, dream in life. So, you know, I think in, in in a sort of sentimental sense, it's nice seeing seeing someone achieve their dreams. You know, that's about the best I can say about Joe Biden. Follow your dreams, people. All right, Andy, thanks for joining us. <laughs> All right, talk to you soon, Tony. See ya.